I preach to a congregation that copiously take notes of the things I say and remember things so that if I stop a series uh, with about 13 weeks of studying Seeking Him, I'll come back to that series and everybody will know exactly where I'm going to be at, where I left off at, and understand the themes of what I talked about. Uh, but I, that's in my dreams. Here in this real world, um, when I finish or stop preaching the book of Hebrews about 14 weeks ago uh, to do our Seeking Him study, I, I know in reality that you probably have no idea um, what chapter I left off at and where I begin. Um, and I know also that there's been some that have joined in since I began the study of Hebrews, which I began September in 2009, uh, so not quite a year. And so uh, I realized that if I really hope to get back to Hebrews, which I plan to do, um, I need to give you a little review. And so that's what I'm going to do this morning. Next, next Sunday, uh, we're going to have Finney Matthews come and, and share with us. Finney Matthews is from India, and he is, he is a powerful preacher. Some of you have heard him teach. Uh, he's done a great job. I'll actually be able to be here to hear him uh, in a, my church, which is kind of a rare thing. Uh, and then after that, uh, beginning, I believe, uh, in Memorial Day weekend, I'll be resuming uh, in Hebrews chapter 10, which is where we'll start again because we finished Hebrews 9 about uh, 14, 15 weeks ago. Okay, So uh, if you will turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, uh, Wednesday nights I will be resuming our study on, on the book of Exodus. Uh, we're in the Ten Commandments now. Uh, the book of Hebrews is on page 1001 in my Bible. Um, it might be the same in yours. Um, but I encourage you to definitely have your Bible open because we're going to go through this. Uh, our text is uh, nine chapters. Um, and so as our custom, you know, we read our text. So if you will stand with me in honor. <laughs> no, we're not going to stand. We're, I won't read this. Uh, the first service, we had some folks ready to stand up. I just had a caution. But I just uh, we will be using this and we'll be uh, citing this as we go. Now, here is um, here's what I hope you get out of this. Um, our son, uh, Evan, our two-year-old, he's just started having bad dreams. Um, in the last couple weeks, um, he had a bad dream, and he had a bad dream last night, so it's fresh in my mind. Um, and it startles me because he actually calls for me in the middle of the night. Um, I don't know what it is, but up to this point, I think God has just uh, geared Julie so that if she hears a whimper, uh, she wakes up. Um, I mean, they're screaming, and I'm thinking, wow, they slept the night. It's great. And I, I don't, I just don't hear them. Um, but uh, he, he comes up yelling my name, and it's like God just turned a switch on, and I woke up at the first yell, uh, which is really, I think it was the first, I guess it was the first yell. No one else was awake. So uh, I wake up, and she, he's yelling for daddy. And so I, I come in there. And um, I, realizing he must be having a bad dream. He's just shaking, crying, and I gather him up. You know, he just you know, squeezes you like a little two-year-old boy can and uh, crying. And I, I just I say something scary. He says, yeah, something scary. And, and I tell him, you know, you had a bad dream. I says, okay, I'm here. I'm here. And then I, I have a little prayer with him and, and tell him about who I go to when I'm scared. Uh, Dad's... You've got a unique role in teaching your children the strength of God. 
because when they think of someone strong, they think of the dad. And so you, dad, tell them about God, who is your strength. Mothers, you've got uh, a unique ability to teach them the nurturing, compassionate, merciful nature of God. Because when they want compassion and mercy and nurture, they don't come to dad. Because dad, dads aren't very good at giving that. Uh, but they give to mom. And so, moms, you teach them the one who you go to for mercy and compassion and nurture. And so, I was teaching him about, about God and Jesus, who is my strength, and I was having a prayer. So the next morning, I, he wakes up, and I say, you know, I'm trying to kind of curious. I say, you know, Evan, did you have a bad dream? And he starts crying again, you know. And I say, well, uh, what did you dream about? I said, about daddy. I said, oh, about daddy. I said, what was I doing? I said, you were singing. <laughs> I, I, was, I was like, something, something must be wrong here, you know, because surely he's not having a nightmare of me singing. And so I'm thinking, okay, he's just getting confused uh, between the daylight and between the waking hours and the sleeping hours in the middle of the night, all right? And so, yeah, later on he finds out some, some big guy was trying to get him, you know. Um, and so uh, last night he, he, he does this deal again about 2 in the morning, and uh, I go in and uh, hold him, and he says, Daddy, Daddy, sing. Sing about Jesus. And so... I then sing about Jesus, and I have a prayer with him, and I tell him it's okay. I'm here with you, and Jesus is here, okay? What you have in the book of Hebrews is God, through the book, is singing to you about Jesus. And I I want you to get that. From chapter 1 through chapter 9, and even beyond in the whole book, he is saying... You who have the nightmares of life, and life is filled with nightmares. And this day and age, when he writes this book, the book, the author of Hebrews, he's writing to Jews who are being persecuted because they follow Jesus, who are being tempted to forsake Christ, and so they can take a more comfortable, easy way of worship that fits in with the, with the people. And he says, you're dealing with difficult stuff. I want you to stay the course. I want you to keep the faith. And yes, there are nightmares in life. And there will be nightmares in life. But in the nightmares, sing about Jesus. Because Jesus, I was praying with him this morning. I said, I was helping him pray. I say, say, thank you, God, that you're bigger than my dreams. Thank you, God, that you're bigger than my nightmares. And so my goal is to sing to you about Jesus in a way that helps you understand that he's bigger. He's bigger than the stuff you deal with. And it's with that thought in mind, if you'll turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1, because it's a great way to begin the song. Uh, in that song, or in this, this book, he noted, noticed verse 2. He said, I want to tell you about Jesus. And these last days, Jesus is speaking to us. God is speaking to us. Through Jesus. And now notice in verse 2, he goes through a litany of who Jesus is. He is the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of the nature of God. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He makes purification for sins. He sits down at the right hand of majesty on high, and he is superior to the angels. You've got eight different qualities about who 
Jesus is. And so this is a way of saying that Jesus is outspeaking all the prophets. Now, you didn't know that we're different from, from Islam in this. Jesus considers our, our, Jesus is considered a prophet like Adam, uh, like Abraham, like Moses, like the other characters. Jesus is a prophet. But here in the book of Hebrews, Jesus is saying no, or the God is saying, no, Jesus outspeaks the prophets. He is greater than the prophets. And then we come and we, we get notice in verse uh, 4 and 5, he starts bringing out angels. In verse 4, he is superior to the angels. And so Jesus outdoes the angels. And here there is a difference among Jehovah's Witnesses. Jehovah's Witnesses will consider Jesus as an angel, great, uh, the greatest of angels, but an angel. But here in the book of Hebrews, he says, no, he is superior to the angels. In verses 5 through 14, there are quotes from the Old Testament. And so what this is, is Old Testament references as an argument as to why Jesus, uh, being the Son of God, is greater than the angels. But then you come to verse uh, 11, 12, and he starts talking about the universe. And he says, you know what? Jesus is the one that, that created the universe. I was just reading recently where they, they are, scientists are discovering that the universe is much greater than they even imagined before, which was huge. And that it could very well be that this earth and this solar system that we're in, just in this, this little bit that we're in, is as an atom. An atom in comparison to the entirety of the universe. That's this whole world. And then it says, this universe, verse 10, the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you're the same, and years will have no end. Jesus outlasts the universe. As grand, as huge as it is, Jesus is greater still than that. So he outspeaks the prophet, he outdoes the angels, and he outlasts the universes. And and so Jesus rises to the top of every circle you put him in. And so this book is about Jesus. It's about the gospel, which is is equated with Jesus. And so we come to chapter 2. This great Jesus, we don't neglect because he is so great. Notice what it says. Uh, And verse 1, therefore we must pay closer attention to what we've heard lest we drift away. Why is it important that we heed this great gospel? Because if we don't listen to it, if we don't pay attention, we'll drift away from the greatest thing that this world can ever experience. And that is the gospel of Jesus, who Jesus is and what he's done. Now, in verse 2, we heed the gospel, chapter 2. Because there is certain punishment. You notice every transgression or disobedience receives a just trans, a just retribution. There is an accounting that God does. does. So we need to remember and consider and think about what the gospel is, who Christ is. Now, we keep on reading verse 3. We heed the gospel because it's a great salvation. You see that verse 7? Don't neglect such a great salvation. Now, this salvation, verse 4, is attested to by God by signs, wonders, Miracles, gifts of the Holy Spirit. And so what we're talking about here is not just man's ideas, but this is God attesting to this Jesus as salvation. Now, we keep on reading verse 5. We heed the gospel because it's going to rise to preeminence. You see this in verse 5 
uh, where it talks about how he's going to come in verse 6, that when it's all said and done, in verse 8, everything is in subjection to Christ. And so the gospel rises and falls with who Christ is. And so that takes us to the first part of chapter 2. Now, in verse uh, 9, we're introduced to the name Jesus. In in verse 9, it's the first time the book of Hebrews mentions the literal name of Jesus as the one we're talking about. Now, this great Jesus... Why did he become a man? Why was it important that God became a man? And so the rest of chapter 2 addresses that question of the incarnation. Why did God, the great Christ, become a man? Well, first of all, in verse 9, he became a man so that he might taste death for everyone. All right? God lived as a man so that he could die. But not just to experience death but to do something for us in regards to death, to taste death for everyone. Now, verse 10, why did Jesus become a man? Why did God become a man? Well, so that he can, in verse 10, bring many sons to glory. This is one of my favorite verses in this this chapter. It is referring back to uh, Genesis chapter 2, when God created man, he made him in his image. And so God's idea was that we would be like him, be like Christ, conform to his character. And so he says, bringing, calling many sons to glory is saying, go back to the original idea and how I made you, that you would reflect me. And the best parts of me is Christ working in me. And so he wants us back to that direction. But then we keep on reading, we find in verse 11, not only to bring many sons to glory, but this pioneer of our faith came and suffered as a man so that we would have one origin, sanctified as one origin, verse 11, that is, that he would not be ashamed to call him brothers. Why did God become a man? To become, uh, to make many sons into a family. You see, God, Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, there is interdependence on one another. There is family even within who God is. And so when we're made in this image, there is innate within us a desire for family, a desire to depend on one another, a community. Isn't it amazing that when you go... Um, Folks go to coffee houses, uh, and they, they read, uh, they do their, they have got their computer set up, and they've got their, their earphones in, but they want to be among others. They're not talking to one another, you know, but there's just something about being with someone else. Why? Because God made us to want to be with others, even if we don't have anything to say to them, and... Hopefully they won't say anything to us. There's still that desire to be with one another. So God becomes a man to bring and make a family. In our day and age, it's called the church, his family, that that relationship with one another. But in verse 14, this is another one of my favorite passages. Why did God become a man? Verse 14, to destroy Satan, death, and release us from fear of death. He tasted death so that he could overcome death to destroy Satan. Death, and verse 15, deliver all those who fear death, were subject to lifelong slavery. And verse 16, why did God become a man? So that he could fulfill the promise to Abraham. Now, the reason I'm preaching uh, and teaching on Hebrews after doing Genesis, it's been about two years in Genesis, uh, is so that you can get the connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And Hebrews is the bridge between the two. Okay, so when you remember in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, when you remember in, in Genesis chapter 17, verse 4 and 7, God gives promises to Abraham, through you will come one who will bless the world. Then you read this passage in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 16, and it says, oh yeah, 
God made promises to Abraham. God became a man, specifically a Jew, to fulfill his promise to Abraham all the way back in Genesis. You see, the book, the books of the Bible are all about Jesus. They all point to him. Genesis, Exodus, even Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. You go throughout and they point to Jesus Christ. In fact, you remember this resurrection story? The Bible says that Jesus come across, came across two disciples on the way to Emmaus on that resurrection Sunday. And they did not recognize Jesus and they're wondering. And so Jesus comes to them and without them recognizing, he explains to them from the beginning, from the prophets, from Moses, Genesis, to, to David, uh, to all the prophets, why it must be that the Messiah must die and rise again. And so you see, he takes them through the Old Testament. I love to be able to sit in that and says, it's all about Jesus. It's all about me. And so he says, look, this is something that goes all the way back to Genesis. This is a fulfillment of the promise. And then, verse 17, why did Jesus become a man? Why did the, the great Christ become a man? So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Jesus became a man. There's incarnation so he can be my priest, all right? Why? Remember, a priest represents man to God. They're a bridge between the two. And so for someone to be a bridge between God and man, they must also be man and God. And that's the unique character of who Jesus is. God and man, so that he could be the bridge between the two. All right? So, let's go to chapter 3. You're with me so far? You know chapter 1, chapter 2? What, what do we learn in chapter 3? Well, chapter 3 hits on this idea of if Jesus is great, then we, let's consider him. Let's think about him. Let's let him be the center of our thoughts. And so, chapter 3, verse 2, notice it says, Those of you share in a heavenly calling, calling to be re- sons of glory, then consider Jesus. Why? Who is he? Well, consider him as the apostle who's been sent by God. Consider him as the high priest of our confession. He hits on something here that will be a major theme throughout the book. Jesus as a high priest. Uh, You see in verse 2, consider him who is faithful to him who appointed him. Verse 3, consider him who is worthy of more glory than Moses. Now Moses is their man in, in the Jewish faith. He's the big guy and he says, Jesus is greater than Moses. He's greater than Moses. He's more faithful than Moses. And so if this is true, if if Christ is great, then notice verses 7 through 12. He quotes Psalm 95, verse 7 through 11. Through chapter 3, verse 7, all the way through chapter 4, he gives a running commentary on this Old Testament quote from Psalm 95. Okay, So when he comes to verse 12, he's hitting all the major words of that Old Testament quote and elaborating on it. So verse 12, if Christ is great, therefore tend to our hearts. Notice verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Tend to your heart. And then not only that, we see that we are also uh, to look in verse 13, we are to attend to one another. Christ is so great. Belief in him is so important that we are examining our heart, making sure there's no unbelief in our heart. Not only that, we care for the others in our faith, in our community, and say, hey, are you trusting in Christ? And we are careful. And we want to encourage and remind people, you know, I think your affections are being for Christ are being robbed. It seems like your joys and other things outside of Christ. And, and beware of this, sister. Beware of this, brother. There is that idea that we are here because of Christ. And so we exhort one another, as verse 13 says, uh, that we will not be hardened by the deceitfulness of our sin. Now, we get the idea 
that the thing that we're to fear is unbelief. The thing we're to fear is to unbelief, okay? And so we read in chapter 4, verse 1. He talks about this rest. Again, coming off Psalm 95, he uses that term rest. He says, you know the rest, you remember God created the world six days and seventh day he rested? Now, he didn't rest because he was so worn out from the first six days. It's not, anyway, if God is God, it's not like he has a limited amount of strength. Okay? It's not like, oh, man, I'm tired of saying all those words that created light, created the world, created matter. Now, why did he rest? It wasn't because he was exhausted. He rested on the seventh day to demonstrate to us and to all that it was complete. There's nothing more to do. It's done. So, seventh day, rest is completed. Okay? So, he takes that same theme and going with the people of Egypt, leaving uh, Egypt, going to the promised land. He says, this is going to be the land of rest, the Canaan land that you're going to enter in. Then you know the job will be complete this transference away from slavery in Egypt to worship of God. But he, he brings out the idea that they never quite finished the task. They never quite entered rest. And so Jesus comes into the scene in Matthew chapter 11. He says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. And then Matthew 12, debate about the Sabbath day. Jesus says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I am the Lord of rest. All of these practices that have been up to this point of resting on that seventh day points to me. I am your rest. So what is he saying? Salvation is complete in Jesus Christ. Once I trust in Jesus as my Savior, as my Lord, I don't put upon myself all these duties that I have to do to make sure that God's going to forgive me. Okay? If I, am to, if I am going to die this week, I'm not going to go in a mad rush of, oh, okay, let me give all this and let me make sure I go to church this amount of times and let me sing in the choir uh, and let, let me just do all these deeds so that I can hope to be saved. I'm not adding to what Christ has done because it is sufficient, it is complete, and what it is. So if I sing, if I give, if I worship, if I do these things, it's because I am saved, not in hopes that I will be saved. Do you understand the difference there? It, it is so easily changed in the Baptist church. Okay? And so we enter into this rest. This so profoundly impacted me that I named Canaan, Canaan. Uh, Canaan referring to the land of rest. That Jesus is my land of rest. My salvation is complete in him. And so he says in chapter 4, verse 1, Let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Reach what? Reach rest. Resting in Christ. Trusting in him. Belief in him. Let us fear unbelief. Why? Why do we fear unbelief? Because in chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, if you have unbelief, it precludes rest. You're not saved if you're trying to do it by your works and not trusting in Christ. It precludes rest. In verse 12, 
Why do we fear unbelief? Because it will be discovered in this great passage about the Word of God, the power of the Word of God that discerns the thoughts and intents of the heart. He says God's going to reveal it. When you're serving and you're doing things not out of faith but out of obligation, God's going to reveal this and it's, it's going to be exposed. And not only will it be discovered in verse 13, it will be judged. Unbelief will be exposed and you will be given account for the fact that you don't trust God. Now, in chapter 3, verse 18 19, all this is based on this interchanging. Skip, get back with me verse 3 and 18 19. I want to bring out something of chapter 3. It says, To whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. So why did they not enter? Did they not enter that promised land because of disobedience or because of unbelief? Verse 18 and 19 says both, don't they? Why is he saying both? Because they're interchangeable. In the Bible, when you see disobedience, you can exchange it for the word unbelief, and it means the same thing. If you see the word unbelief, you can exchange it for the word disobedience. Here's what that means. When there is sin in my life, when, there, when, when, you just, when it hits you, man, I'm just constantly disobeying God in this area. Here's what's going on. There's something you do not believe about God. I find it a lot easier to deal with sin when I just kind of chalk it up to my personality, or even better, my dad's personality. It's like, you know, uh, this temper, you know, it's kind of a Scott thing. We come back Scotch Irish background. It's just in the genes, you know. I just, every once in a while, I just, I lose control and I get all angry. That's a lot easier to deal with than when I say, you know, when I get angry, and I say things hurtful, it's because I don't believe God. I was like, oh, man, I'm attacking God. But you are attacking God when you sin. And if you can examine your motives, you'll find that you do not believe God in any sin in your life. And so you say, God, examine my heart. Not just my actions, but examine my heart. See where I'm singing against you. Okay? Because I'm saying something I don't believe about God. So that, this is why it's so important. Fear unbelief. He says, you know, of all the nightmares that you're dealing with in your life, with, with people coming, threatening to take your children, threatening to take you, putting you in prison, you'll never see your family again, your life is at stake, all these things that could happen that day and time. He says, those are all terrible. But the worst thing that could happen is that there's unbelief in your heart. Because if there's belief in a heart, it will take you through these things. But if you have unbelief in your heart, then you lose it all. Sing to Jesus in the nightmares. Because the worst nightmare is not to have Jesus. So, let us fear, lest there's any unbelief in our heart. It will be judged. It will be exposed. Now, as we come uh, through the end of chapter 4, it hits on this theme of Jesus as a high priest. He says, you know, Believe in Jesus. Trust in him. Consider who he is. He is a great high priest. He's a great high priest because he is eternal. Okay? He is qualified and he is the source of eternal life. Okay? In chapter 5, verses all the way through, through verse 6. He brings out, actually through verse 10, he brings this out, that he is eternal, he's qualified. Verse 9 of chapter 5, he is the source of eternal life. He is your bridge between you and God. 
Now, if you're about to go over a great chasm, and there's only one way to get across as a bridge, if there's uncertainty about this, it's not going to be about your ability to walk on that bridge, is it? It's going to be whether or not the bridge holds you up. And so when you come across a great chasm in your life called death, I encourage you to examine the bridge. Check out the quality, the structure, the material. Jesus is that bridge. He is the high priest. And so he says, examine his character. Examine his qualifications. And in chapter 5 through for verse 10, when you consider who he is, it builds confidence, not because of, of some ability of walking. Anybody can walk, but it's the bridge upon you walk on. So that's why we sing of Jesus. And so in, in chapter 5, beginning in verse 11, he says, you know what? I want you to walk on Christ. I want you to trust in Christ as the high priest. He is, he is qualified. He reminds me of Melchizedek, a character of the Old Testament. But you know what? I don't know if you can understand what I'm saying. And so in chapter 5, verse 11 through chapter 6, he starts talking about, you know, we need to grow up in the faith. I don't know if I can continue talking about what we're talking about. Because you've got dull ears. Dull ears. Uh, it took me a while for me to figure out what does it mean to grow up. I remember it was just maybe this past year. I was writing in my journal. And I wrote, maybe I'll figure this out when I grow up. Here I am, 35. I'm not quite certain about what it means to grow up. You know, I always wondered as a, as a 10, 11, 12-year-old what you'd be like and what you'd look like when you grow up. And you realize as you grow up, you never quite figured out what it means to grow up? Well, I thank you. I thank the scripture because it, it taught me what does it look like for a man, a woman to grow up. And I, and I learned from the scripture, growing up means being like Christ. Being like Christ. So he talks about growing up. He says in chapter 5, verse 11, he says, you know, this is hard to explain, and since you've become dull of hearing, how do you grow up? Well, in chapter 5, it says right here in verse 11, you grow up by hearing by faith, all right? When you hear the word of God by faith, it's not just whether or not you know a lot of stuff. It's by listening with faith. This is why I teach the word of God. Some of you will say, well, why on earth are you teaching about the book of Hebrews? I mean, that's a book that's over 2,000 years old. Listen, you know what? I don't have some psychological strategy to figure you out. All I can do is just teach the word of God, and God does a work in your heart. It's amazing. I don't, I don't understand how it is that it changes your desires. But by hearing the word of God, it either convicts you so you never want to come back here and hear this stuff, or you start getting a strange fascination with this. Next thing you know, it's starting to change who you are and changing your desires. And you're thinking, you know what? That's God. That's God. How do you grow up? He says, by hearing, by faith. You guys are not growing up because you've become dull of hearing. The problem wasn't with their ears. The problem was with their heart. But notice verse 14. How do you grow up? By letting the gospel form your heart. He says, solid food is for the mature, for those who have the powers of discernment Trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. The gospel is changing our heart. How do you know when someone's grown up? It's not, uh, you know, someone says, oh, they're a deep believer. What does that mean? Usually it means that they say stuff that no one else understands, you know. Um, What does that mean to be deep with the Lord? All right. 
It's not going necessarily into details of what Scripture is, but it's showing how Scripture lives out in our life. The mature follower of Christ is not the one who has the Bible memorized. Okay? That's impressive, but it's not what it means to grow up in Christ. What does it mean? Well, look here, verse 14. It's that person who, by the Word of God, by the Gospel forming their heart, they've got the ability to distinguish by practice right from wrong, good from evil. They live what is good, and they shirk away, and they avoid that which is evil by their lifestyle. You want to know who a good follower of Christ is? Who a good believer is? You want to know a deep person? You have to look at their lifestyle, not by what they're saying. Growing up means that you become like Christ. As God originally designed you to be made in His image, as in Romans 8, 28, 29, says all these things are working together, and so that God is purposing in your heart to be conformed to His image, and you can discern by practice that which is good from evil. Now, how else do you grow up? In chapter 6, verses 1 through 9, you get some of the challenging passages here, but how else do you grow up? By considering the alternative. What's the alternative to growing up? It's growing away from Christ. Becoming more and more like this world and less like Christ. Where does that lead you? In chapter 6, verse 1 and 9, I believe that it is teaching not about someone losing their salvation, but someone who has never been saved versus those who are. Now, let me just give a brief explanation. I think one reason for that in verses 7 is found in verses 7 and 8. He compares this to two fields. One field that is barren, produces thorns, no fruit. The other one that is filled with fruits. He does not say that this field used to produce fruits and now is barren. He's saying these are two separate fruits. One filled with God's fruit. One filled with man's fruit. It's barren. And then notice verse 9. Verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. What is he saying? All this that was talking about before, verses 1 through 8, is not about salvation. It's not about being saved. These are those who are not saved. So consider the alternative. If you're not going to grow up in Christ, that means you're not in Christ. And it is a dismal outlook. He says, I hope things better. I know things better of you. Things belong to salvation. He says, therefore, hope in Christ. Hope, why? Because of verse 9, it is, hope is evidence of salvation. It is the fruit of God's working in your life, to have hope in your life. Now, what I'm talking about hope, hope is faith. It's the same thing as faith, but faith projected toward the future of what God will do in your life. There is a certainty based on his character of who God is, his nature, and dealing with you, dealing with life around you. So hope is evidence of your salvation, that you belong to God, and that God is greater than the problems of your life. God's going to do something here. And so, verse 12, what does hope do? Hope energizes obedience. You see this? So, have full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those to faith and patience inherit the promises. It energizes my obedience. I think about 1 John 3, 1 and 2. It says, uh, Behold, what manner of love the Father has given to us, that we shall be called sons of God. And henceforth, we do not know what will be hereafter, but this we do know, that when we shall see him, we shall see him as he is. And anyone who has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. It is the hope that I will see God and that God is going to work that energizes my obedience. Okay? And then, also, as we keep on reading, hope puts you in great company. In chapter, 13, or ch- uh, chapter 6, verse 13 through 17, 
It talks about who we're in company with when we have hope. Verse 18, hope reflects a great God. So that by two intangible things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we have fled for refuge and might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. And then hope reflects a great Savior. Notice in verse 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. He's, he's talking about Old Testament metaphors here, where Jesus is going as a forerunner on our behalf, on our behalf having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In other words, what he's saying is, you have such a great Savior that he brings you even to the presence of God. Hope, when you pray, every time you pray, you're hoping. It's faith looking to the future, looking to the unseen of what God is doing on your behalf. So, he brings up this character of Melchizedek again. He says, and speaking of Melchizedek, chapter 7, let me tell you a little about Melchizedek. He represents who we need. So, chapter 7, verse, uh, verse 2. He is the king of righteousness. We need a king of righteousness. In verse 2, he is also uh, the king of peace. We need a king of peace. In verse 3, we need a king who is without beginning and without end. And so in verses uh, 4 through 11, we need someone that's greater than Abraham. Abraham cannot save me. He cannot save me. We need someone who's greater than the priests of, of Levites. Verses 11 through 14. In verse 16, we need a king, a priest, who is indestructible in his life. And we have that in Jesus. In verse 20, he's a better high priest because there's an oath that makes him better. He's a better high priest because of verse 24, he's permanent. He's not getting rotated in and out with another high priest. And he's a better high priest because of his character in verse 26. His character ensures that we can be a bridge with God. Now, all that to say, because we have a greater high priest, chapter 8 we have a better covenant, all right? A better covenant in contrast to the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. Now, why is the New Testament better than the Old? Why am I a follower of Christ versus uh, a follower of, of Judaism? All right? Well, in chapter 8, verses 1 through 5, the Old Testament dealt with shadows, symbols that pointed to the reality found in Christ. Okay? The old dealt with shadows. We got things like a tabernacle. Okay? When we talk about the God's building, you know, every once in a while I hear someone say, well, we need to take care of God's building. A lot of times they're referring to the building which the church meets in. Okay? I understand what they're saying. I agree. Yes, we need to take care of this building. However, I think you're limiting when you say that's God's building. If you want to be biblical about it, the Bible mentions, yes, there was a building of God. It was a tabernacle. First it was tent. Later on it was a temple. And God had very specific plans for that. And every detail of that tabernacle and temple pointed to Jesus Christ. So, in the New Testament, we find that temple's been destroyed. It's no longer here. So, when we're looking for God's house, okay, yes... This is God's house, but if I go one house over, that's also God's house. If I go to every house down till I get to your house, I'm still in God's house. And on the road that I got on to get to your house, I was in God's house. And as I look at the sky above your house, I'm still seeing God's house. 
You just need to understand that this world is God's house. In fact, if you look at your feet, your legs, your hands, your hair, your face, your body, biblically speaking, that's your the house of God. Because the Bible is very clear. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, your body is the temple of God. Now what gets me is I remember back in my years growing up in church, as a little fellow, getting told by others, don't run, don't run. This is God's house. I agree, you shouldn't run because you can hurt people. But if we're talking about God's house, you shouldn't run outside either. And some of those same men that were very dogmatic about what we should do and don't do, you would see them smoking outside the doors, messing up their body. See the contradiction? I don't want to just pick on smoking because there's a lot of things that we can do, including gluttony and alcoholism and other things that destroy our body. But if we get so harsh on people running around and doing things here because it's God's house, I agree you shouldn't run around here because it can hurt people. Same, same zeal should go to where I care of our body. These are shadows. The Old Testament was very specific about what to wear in worship. And we talk about church clothes. I, I'm guilty of that. What are church clothes? Well, you know, it's nicer than the average, what you might wear. That is cultural, and there's nothing wrong with that being cultural. You just need to know it's cultural and not biblical. Okay? And, and, there's, and there's nothing wrong with being cultural in this. But biblically speaking, if you want to talk about church clothes, if you want to talk about God's clothes, what you wear to worship, then the only thing we've got to go on is maybe wearing a white linen outfit, um, a turban with a gold plate on their head saying holiness to God, breastplate, stones on it, uh, priest's garments, okay? Um, Old Testament are shadows, very specific, pointing to things that are reality in the New Testament. So the law of the cultural practices you don't see in the New Testament because it's just cultural. The New Testament is a gospel that can go into every cultural. So it doesn't go into the how-to. It doesn't go into the how-to. It says this is what you worship in the spirit and in truth. As he says to the Samaritan woman, it says, you know what? There's going to come a day where it doesn't matter whether you're in Jerusalem or you're in Samaria or in any place. You're going to worship in spirit and truth. There's not a specific building you go to. All right? So what does that mean? Well, culturally speaking, I know that some folks, even in this region, we have our different cultures. Do you understand that we have different cultures even in this location, among generations, among where you grew up? There's the culture of the suit and tie or dress. There's the culture of, you know what, I've got a golf shirt and that's what I'm wearing. Um, who's wrong? Nobody. Nobody's wrong. Because the Bible doesn't teach the New Testament church clothes. Okay? 
there is a modesty, there's a glorification of God, not yourself, that is to rule every day, not just Sunday. And so if you go to parts of, of Kenya, you'll have some folks all dressed in red, jumping up and down as they're part of their worship. I don't want them teaching that this is the way you must worship because I'm not prepared to wear red every day and jumping up and down as I worship, okay? I'm not prepared for someone to tell me that you have to wear a golf shirt, khakis, uh, to worship, and we shouldn't be ready to tell others we have to wear a suit and tie our dress. It's cultural. There's nothing wrong, but it's just cultural. Understand that. So in the Old Testament... You've got very specific things that are shadows that point to Christ being the reality. And chapter 8, verses 6 through 13, you have the Old Testament. What's the purpose of the Old Testament? To expose you. you know, we're, doing the, we're starting the Ten Commandments. And it's exposing us to say, we're not right with God. But in the New Testament, the New Covenant enables us to follow after Christ, uh, to follow after God. And so we have verses 6 through 13, the, the fact of the gospel working in our lives to change us. Notice verse 10, that the law is being put into my mind, it's been written in my heart, and, and that I will be, uh, God will be my God, that we will be His people, that we will know Him and will say to one another, know the Lord, verse 11. God, through the New Testament, is enabling, where in the Old Testament, He's just he's exposing me for who I am and who I'm not. And so, verse 13, and speaking of a new, tov- new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This was very threatening to the Jews. and was within just a few years that the temple was destroyed after this is being written. So chapter 9, he's going to talk about the shadows. He's going to talk about the tabernacle. Verses 9, 1 through 5, he talks about the tabernacle, tabernacle furniture. And I'm going to do this on Wednesday nights and talk about how they all point to Christ, the pieces of furniture. And then in chapter 6 through 10, he talks, or chapter 9, verse 6 through 10, he talks about the function of these tabernacle furnitures. And then in verse 11 uh, through 26, uh, 28, he talks about the fulfillment in Christ of the tabernacle furniture. And notice where we end up in verse 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And so the end of this is to say, I have sung to you of Jesus. In the time of your nightmares, I sing to you about Jesus so that your heart will long for who he is and that you desire him. And so when he comes back, he finds you eagerly waiting him. I'm going to share one of my favorite illustrations I've shared from the series so far. It's the story of Repicheep, the mouse, from the Chronicles of Narnia series, The the Voyage of the Don Treader. Um, Now, uh, Repicheep is a mouse, taller than your average mouse, and he talks. A good clue that we're talking about fiction here, okay? So, his characteristic is that of courage. He's fiercely loyal. Though little in strength, he makes up for it in his zeal and courage. And his greatest desire is Aslan the lion. Aslan the lion is the king of Narnia, and he represents God. 
where we came up with Ashlyn for Carissa's middle name, pointing to Aslan, the god. And so the story is they're, they're on this ship called the Dawn Treader, and they're trying to find Aslan's country, which is in the east. And they get to a point where they have just a limited amount of supplies. And if they go further, any further, then they know they do not have enough supplies to turn around and come back. But yet they don't know how far Aslan's country is. And so they're wondering, should we go hoping that we've got enough supplies to make it? Or do we turn around now to ensure safety? They're at the point of no return. And so a great debate is looming. What should they do? Go to Aslan country or turn around? All the while, Repicheep the Mouse has been quiet in this debate. It dawns on them that his quietness. And so they, uh, a character says, you know, he normally would be vocal here. And, and, and asks Repicheep, why are you not debating in this? Why are you not talking? Repicheep says, why should I debate? Why should I talk? My own plan is made. While I can sell east on the dawn treader, I will sell east. And when she fells me, I will paddle east on my boat. And when this little boat sinks, I will swim east with my four paws. And when I sink, I will sink with my nose pointed to the sunrise, and I die with my face pointed toward Aslan's land. And that's how we live. We sing the song of Jesus, who's greater than our nightmares. And if we die, we die longing and living toward Jesus, who is our hope, who in just Hoping in him gives us life. If we should die before he comes, we die with our face toward Jesus. And if the Lord returns, let him find us eagerly waiting for him. Will you sing a song about Jesus?